What is the most shocking story you'd say, the most shocking experience that you've seen? You guys want to make me cry today. Yeah, well, you <laughs> know, <laughs> you take right the good and the bad, right? <laughs> Has there ever been a time where you, you just said, you know what, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. It's overwhelming. Let's go corporate, make more money. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, there isn't a moment um, that goes by in a week where I don't have that feeling. Welcome to another episode of Quran in Action. On this podcast, we we invite amazing guests and we extract from them their motivation of the Quran and the, how they've been able to service the community by implementing the Quran in Action. Today we have with us Sister Jasmine Gandur. We're going to talk about what brought her into the charity sector. We're going to talk about how Muslim women are empowered in our community today. And we're going to go even deeper and talk about the emotions she felt during her visit to Christchurch after the attacks. Jasmine Gendor, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Allah wa rafiki. Thank you for having the time to come out. Um, we're going to cut straight to it. Um, mashallah, just going through your pages on socials. And um, you asked me just before camera, why me? Um, subhanAllah, your work is, is a testament to who you are, inshallah. So I can see that you've been in the charity sector since 2013. You were sharing with us before how you got into it. Let, let's do it again. Right. Um, yeah, it's an interesting story. It's probably one that people I think could resonate with. Um, I Before I got into the charity sector, I was working for um, a fashion house as a marketing coordinator. And I wasn't wearing the hijab. I'm ashamed to say that I, I, I wasn't praying at that time. And I think I was just kind of living um, and, uh, I didn't realize how empty I was until one day I was having a conversation with my colleagues, um, specifically for that, uh, that fashion house and we'll, the topic of religion came up and everyone got really passionate about it as, as, as you would when you're speaking to people of different backgrounds and different faiths. Um, and, uh, we, we started speaking about hijab and I said, well, I could do this because I think it got a really touchy, it was a really touchy subject. Um, and they said, well, you don't even do the basics. And I said, how do you know that I don't do the basics? And they say, well, we don't see you pray. You know, we don't see you get up on your lunch breaks. And and these are non-Muslim colleagues. These are yeah. non-Muslim colleagues. And I thought to myself, but who are you to judge? You're not even Muslim. Um, and, and, and then we went, we went back and forth. And then when I went home that day, I didn't really sit well with me that I, I felt like I didn't just let myself down, but I let. I let Islam down. That's how I felt in that moment. So you learn very quickly that that you are a representation of Islam. Yeah? 100%. Whether you've got the headscarf on or whether you're not, people know who you are. I wasn't a good ambassador at that mm. point. And I think um, the uh, the conversation that I'd had with my father when I went home that night is, what would you think, it, What? how would you feel if I put the hijab on? And he said to me that hijab is a jihad of vanity. And then wow. he asked me that question he said, do you think that that's something that you're willing to sacrifice? Because it is a sacrifice, but it's a good one and it's for a good cause and it's for your deen, it's for Allah. And I said to him, I said, I think I could do it. And he said, well, let's see. And it's not a game, yeah? It's not like you can put it on and off and on and off. Absolutely not. And he actually said that to me yeah. too. Um, he said to me, he goes, don't think that this is something that you, he goes, when you do it, he goes, you have to hold on to it. Correct. It's something that you can lose very, very quickly. So he, he encouraged me, but he also didn't want to push me because it was something that I think if you, 
a lot of people, I think, talk about hijab in a way where it's like uh, a lot of girls feel as though they're pressured into doing it by their family. And I think they just don't realize that this is an an, an act of worship. Yeah. So it's one that you actually have to really embrace. So you put the hijab on. Talk to us about your first day at work. Um, I, my colleagues were very surprised. Yeah. Uh, I think it was something that I did to not just prove. I, I, it wasn't about proving something to them, but it was about proving something to myself. How long between the conversation and... The next day. Wow, inshallah. The next day. I, I walked out of my house the next day and I felt um, I felt like someone had poured water on me and I literally felt that feeling from the top of my head to the, to the tips of my toes. And when I walked into the office that day, it was gasps from everywhere, but I got an overwhelming amount of support. But I realized that I was in the wrong industry. I wasn't in an industry that allowed me to be unapologetically Muslim. So I had to resign. Um, that's what I did. So that's how I got out of it. <laughs> you know what? So be before we get into you um, changing your industries, um, something happened today actually at work that's that's similar. So so I've got my own office and we've got the staff that work with us who, who are non-Muslim. And they know every Friday, uh, 11.30 we leave, we go to Friday prayers and we come back, right? Um, today it so happened that I had another commitment and I was going to catch the second session at one o'clock. So 12.15 comes and... And one of the ladies from the office comes in, Aladdin, Aladdin, you're going to forget your prayers. Non-Muslim, you know? And I looked at her and I smiled. I said, no, don't worry. I've, I've got a second session on today. And I went and I came back and she goes, you know what, Aladdin, I was, I was really worried that you were going to forget your prayers and that, you know, something distracted you in your office. So you're right. We are ambassadors just without even having to talk to people at times. Um, we're showcasing our religion. I think people often forget that. They often forget that being an ambassador of our faith and a good representation is also an act of da'wah, um, which is obviously where it is that we come in with what it is that you do and what it is that you do. Um, so that's really, really important. I think um, just being the best that you can be as a Muslim and, and as a person is something that uh, it really goes a long way with people who don't even identify with any faith Correct. because they look at you and they turn around and they think, I could be like that. I could be like that. And then that's one step closer to really discovering who it is that we are and what Islam is. Well, what I've noticed is um, the non-Muslim people around me, um, they actually respect the fact that we value something, for example. So we, they respect the fact that a sister would value her scarf um, and wouldn't compromise on that. They respect the fact that 11.30 on a Friday, I'm at that door. doesn't matter what appointment I have on that day. Um, you know, I get all the time where I'm praying in my office and, you know, everybody, shh, shh, let us pray, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and it's nice. It, it gives you that bit of satisfaction that somewhat of a message is being relayed. Shout um, out to your team. Yeah, shout out to your team. <laughs> They're definitely going to watch this. I've got to ask. Tell me. So did you tell her, a shadow? No. Not yet. Not yet. But let's go, sister. So left the industry. Where do you go? Um, Real estate? <laughs> I probably could have. Um, I, 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 I left the industry and that was something that I was going to, I thought that I was going to do for a really, really long time. Um, and I'm still, I still love fashion. So it's still something that I'm really kind of passionate about because I kind of grew up around a lot of women and they were really into that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I started applying for different roles or um, with a marketing background mm -hmm. and um, I couldn't actually find anything, you know. I wasn't getting a job anywhere. Um, and I had tons of experience with this place and 
I thought, why aren't I getting anything? It's just not working. And I went through a really dark time because I thought I took one step closer. I became closer to my faith, but subhanAllah, I'm not like, I'm, and I'm making all this dua and I'm doing everything right. But why isn't it working for me? Um, and then uh, one thing that I'll talk about later on um, that I read like it was when I started reading Quran um, and I was really kind of, I guess, building a relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through those words um, that one one sort of really kind of resonated with me. And I just thought I had to be patient at that point. And then my cousin asked me, she said to me, you know, you don't you're not you're not hanging around with the right people like you don't have the right friends around you. And, I, and at that time. I didn't because all of my friends were my colleagues who used to go to bars, who used to go to restaurants that weren't halal. Um, and I didn't, that environment wasn't me anymore. So I had a bit of an identity crisis. So. But also what happens is they end up introducing you to their kind of avenues. Correct. Right? So they'll talk to you about career paths that they're used to, that they're accustomed to. And it's, I guess, just not ticking with what you're looking for. That's right. Um, and then she said to me at that time, she said, uh, I'm going to go and volunteer at this event. Why don't you come? And I said, I don't, it's not my thing. I don't want to volunteer at an event. <laughs> How are we going to run Brothers in Need without volunteers? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, for all the volunteers out there, you guys are very valued. But, yeah, I mean, I, it just it didn't sit well with me. And I think at that time back then, it wasn't a big thing. So um, I, I went with her. I said, Bismillah, khalas, you know what, I'm going to do it. And um, And there I met. And I don't know if you guys know him, but I met Mazen. Yeah. Everyone knows Mazen. Shout out, Mazen Fahmi. Yeah, well, shout done, out mate. To Mazen. <laughs> well done, mate. Well done, mate. And he, he asked me what so I was does doing. Does that mean he's sponsoring this episode? No, he's, <laughs> well, you know what? I could talk to him after if you like. Yeah. I'm sure I could get something. Um, but he, he's, I think he was interested in my story and my background. And he started asking me, you know, where did you work and what did you do? And how did you, did you just, be, I heard you just put on hijab, welcome. In the way that Mezen talks, yeah. you know, my tones just changed to kind of imitate him. Um, but uh, I started working with Mezen. Um, and from there, um, shout out to Muhammad Zaud. Muhammad Zaud is the one who actually introduced me to my first project in charity. That was with Islamic Relief at the time. Yeah, it's They hadn't launched yet. And he said, I'm going to put you on this project. Grueling hours. I think I was doing like 16 hour days just doing research about who it is that this charity was and what work do they do? Was and it satisfying? No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. Oh, yeah, no. um, it wasn't until... But, no, but that, that's a real lesson to learn, you know? Yeah. People think that just because they now work for something that's supposed... Or that is, sorry, a good cause, that all of a sudden the angels are going to come down and you're going to be satisfied no. and you're going to be flying over the moon and you're going to do 26 hours days and you're happy, but it doesn't work like that, right? No, absolutely not. But did it come later? It did. It came after I started to read some of the stories um, that we were to showcase at the time. Um and I think I, my whole life, I think I'd gone through a point where I didn't realize how selfish I was because I was exposed to this whole new thing that I didn't know existed. Um, I didn't even know what the concept of zakat or sadaqah was at that point. Could you believe that? I, this is my life now. I live and breathe it. So we don't want to know how old you are now, but how old were you then? I was 20 years old. And that's good to know. Yeah. yeah because... You know, for, for a lot of girls, 20-year-old, uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. So for a lot of 20-year-old young ladies out there, chances are they're going through what you went through, right? Yeah. 
Absolutely. So what we want to try to encourage them or showcase to them is there are other avenues, there are other paths. You just have to open your mind, I think. Um, it's just one of those things where society is very critical about everything. I think if you look at every single, if you look at the story of every single one of our prophets, um, peace be upon them, they went through a time where they were they were highly criticized by the community at that time. Um, and I think young women are very impressionable. Yeah, I think society is very critical of people. Um, if you look at uh, every single one of our prophets in our faith, peace be upon them, uh, each one of them went through a whole heap of criticism from the community around them, from their own people. Um, and so the young ladies, the girls, the teenagers that are growing up in the community that we live in, especially with um, the world that we live in now where social media is so accessible to everyone and um, everyone can hide behind the keyboard or hide behind, um, you know, a, a phone screen. Um, you know, they're, 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 they're very, I guess, um, it's, it's, it's a sensitive world that we live in, right? And it's a harsh one because you could say something and you have no idea how it is that it could change someone's perspective, not just for the, for the good, more times, more, more times uh, than not, it, it actually does a lot of damage. But you know what's even um, more astonishing than that is not, not knowing how much damage you can cause, but not knowing who you're reaching, right? Right. Because you could, we're here today and for any chance we could be reaching someone on the other side of the world who could, inshallah, be inspired by a story like yours. Or we could say the wrong thing in five minutes' time and we can discourage someone. That let's, could be another side of the world. We do. <laughs> so we'll cut that, right? So we'll, we'll cut that part out of the podcast. I'm going to jump straight to. Um, I'm going to test your memory a bit. So do you remember every country you visited? So 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 let's just summarize this. So you've entered into the charity sector, right? And then you worked into projects, and then you got the amazing opportunity to actually visit projects and visit um, countries outside of Australia, right? So do you remember how many countries you've visited since 2013, and what was your most memorable visit? Um, five countries in total and all of them have their own, all of them have their own special moments and they're all unique in their own way because the people, the people are, are they're an incredible people, our almost incredible subhanAllah, wherever it is that you go in the world, um, what unites us is, is faith and that's such a beautiful thing and you don't actually see it until you're there. Um, I'll give you a, a bit of background on that. I was recently in Bangladesh this year um, and we, we had just finished the distribution and the boys went in to pray Jummah and uh, it was it was a very small mosque and it was quite conservative so they didn't have a female section at the time so I had to wait for the boys to finish and then I, yeah. I went in to pray after them. Um, whilst I was waiting, one of the beneficiaries that we had actually given aid to, subhanAllah, I, I couldn't speak her language but I knew what she was saying. So she had invited me to walk back with her to her house, which was a few hundred meters away from the distribution point. And no one was there. And I had, um, you know, wherever we go uh, for these field trips, we've always got like a security team and, you know, people around us and everyone was praying at that point. But I felt this inclination, like this, this urge and this need to kind of to go with her. So I said, Bismillah, and I went with her. And um, I went to her house. She set up like she she wanted me to sleep on the only piece of furniture that she had. She said, lie down, you must be tired. And no, she didn't say it in English, but I could understand, understand what she yeah. was saying, subhanAllah. And um, she went and picked these mangoes because someone had told her that my favorite fruit was mangoes. Wow. 
and she it was the only came from the only tree that she had and she filled a whole bag and she said she so we're talking about someone who a moment ago was a recipient receiving of aid. aid so when you say aid you mean what, what what did you give her you gave her a brand new mercedes we, what did you give no, her no we didn't give her a brand new mercedes we so the the villages that we we visited at that point were flood affected villages so they're villages that i think that recently been ravished by floods and you know their their homes were destroyed and um they were living in temporary makeshift shelters at that time and they had no access to food or just the basic essentials so we we're providing care packs um so hygiene care packs and also massive food packs to last them an entire month that had all of the essentials that were local to that region and subhanallah this lady was so content right that she could invite you to a home try to give back something Try to show appreciation. I can say 100% that that is the case in every single one of the countries that I've visited. Yeah, they have absolutely nothing and yet they're willing to give it away. SubhanAllah. Whatever little that they have. I guess um, you just highlighted an awesome story, a story that really hit home. What is the most shocking story you'd say, or the most shocking experience that you've seen? You guys want to make me cry today. Yeah, well, you <laughs> know, <laughs> camera's right there. in the bed, right? <laughs> It's funny because you'd think that it would, um, it has deeply affected me, but on the outside surface, you try and kind of, you know, put on a front. But um, recently, I think it was the most difficult, most recent trips that I took to, to Lebanon because it's a country where you see people who were supposed to be like you, you know, they could be, they they were doctors or lawyers or, you know, real estate agents. Um, and then within an instant, it changes because of an economic crisis or because of um, rising poverty levels that are completely beyond anyone's control because of conflict, because of outside influences. So one of the most shocking stories just recently is um, we visited a, um, a doctor in Lebanon who, um, who'd lost everything because of the economic crisis. Um, and subhanAllah, his child was diagnosed with cancer, wow. um, terminal, um, and he's a doctor, but he had absolutely no means to be able to fix it or cure it. He'd lost his wife a month before um, to a brain aneurysm, and he had another daughter who had developed this disability that he also couldn't cure. So it's the industry that he's in, he can't work in it anymore, because it's extremely difficult and he's got two kids who are terminally ill after just having lost his wife. That was hard. Um, I think that for me will be one of the most, seeing the way that they lived, um, no electricity, no access to clean water. Um, like is is hard. Yeah. Alhamdulillah. Um, and I think if you look at everything that's happening in the world, and you look at places like, you know, Africa or, um, you know, you look at severely impoverished communities that really have nothing. You turn around and go, but these ones, these people are more poor. They have less, you know. The difference is that you're, you're talking to people who lived like you the day before. Correct. You know, it's a different kind of poverty when they've had everything and then they lose it. That's hard. So a friend of mine shared a story. He went to the um, Syrian refugee camps in Turkey. And they were giving out food aid, and um, I mean they had the usher there or or the uh, the local organisation showing him through, and he went through a tent and he delivered a food pamper, food pack, and he walked out. 
He walked out, he said to the local, he said, well, why are we giving a zakat to this guy? I mean, he presents well, he's, he's well shaven, he's wearing nice clothes. And um, the guy on the ground there, he says, so you've understood it wrong. He said, this guy just weeks ago was one of the wealthiest guys in Syria. And a missile took away his factory and the war took away his, you know, home and his village. And while he might have an expensive piece of clothes on him, he doesn't have no money to eat. So do you define people by what you see? And, you know, and we fall into this because you're right, because unless they're walking barefoot and they're eating out of the garbage bag and the water that they're drinking is yellow, okay, now they're poor. But if the guy is driving a battered up car, he says, oh, he's got enough for a car, he can sell it. Yeah, but if he sells it, how does he get to work? If he sells it, how does he transport, you know? Or he's got a house, he can sell it and live in rent. Where's he going to? I'm sure you see this all the time with the homeless run. Because I, we've seen some of these stories as well, like the people that we've visited who have degrees or who, um, you know, who, who've been in stronger positions before in life and they look completely different, but they're there asking for a meal because they've got nothing. Give us a recent example, Dean. Well, I was at uh, the Microsoft head office today on Pitt Street. I'm having a chat with the team there and um, they're going to be joining us every month on a different program that we're going to be running. So they're going to be joining us on the homeless outreach program. And I said, you know what, there's, from our experience doing this work since 2015, you have different kinds of people. You've got the individuals that will just take for themselves. You've got individuals that will take for themselves and someone that can't walk to the table, they'll give one to them. You have others that unfortunately might just hoard and take, right? So do I then become a private investigator or do I become an individual that says, show me all of your documentation and prove to me that you are deserving uh, of this aid that we're providing? No, for us, um, I guess at the core of it, uh, it is dawah, it is uh, putting food in somebody's mouth, it is representing Islam uh, in a positive way. Um, and that really is what we started off Brothers in Need doing. We wanted to break some of the stereotypes that were around um, Muslims. You know, for me, my journey, uh, a bit similar to yours, I wasn't the most practicing, the best practicing individual. Um, you know, there was the stuff that was happening in Bilad al-Sham uh, around 2013 to 15, 16. Um, then there was the Lint Siege Cafe. Uh, and so we thought, uh, as a group of friends, uh, the co-founders that started Brothers in Need, what can we do to um, change, you know, uh, that perception about Muslims locally? And so, you know, you're involved in the international space now. We're involved in the local space. Um, and I guess, you know, you mentioned that you've been working in the sector since 2013. So that's coming close to 10 years now. Um, has there ever been a time where you, you just said, you know what, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. It's overwhelming. Let's go corporate, make more money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, there isn't a moment um, that goes by in a week where I don't have that feeling, right? I've actually tried to leave so many times, but I always find myself back here because it's where Allah wants me to be. Well, you left the country, you went to UK and you're still doing the work there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Yeah. I don't find, um, look, uh, everyone's uh, story with how they connect with Din is different. How I connect with it is through the work that I do. Um, it's, it's, um, it's what brought me closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Obviously there are other contributing factors, like major contributing factors, but this is kind of my anchor, right? Everyone has a different hook. 
Yep. Um, this one was mine. Yeah. You know, so uh, it doesn't matter how frustrated you get. And I'm sure that you would. People get frustrated with their friends, with their family, you know, with their siblings. I get my colleagues are the same. Um, the work that we do sometimes is frustrating because it's extremely difficult to kind of maintain a high level of standard because you don't just work for beneficiaries. You also work for donors as well. And they expect the absolute best. All I, the time. I guess in your industry, what could, what would be very um, stressful is that there is no end to poverty, right? So my statistics from but how do you know? For my statistics from research show that fifty uh, percent of the Muslim community in the world is in poverty. That so, is correct. So while theoretically there is an end, Islamically I would differ, right? Because that would mean there's no opportunities for sadaqat, for zakat, maybe. That time will come. I hope so. That time will come where there will be no one to give your zakat to. I, I, it's been narrated. You're right. I don't think it's happening right now. No. So, so what I guess I'm saying is if you go into your <laughs> we'd, office every we'd, day and we'd say... we out of a job. Yeah. Inshallah, that's the case. Inshallah, that is the case. I guess if, so I guess what I'm trying to say is you'd go into your office every day and you'd see that there's more poverty in the world, there's more natural disasters, there's more people to help. Um, it's a double-edged sword, right? It encourages you to stay because there's more work to be done. But at the same time, mate... Human beings, you're gonna say, well, but then, and then, and then what? You know, when, yeah. when does it enter this? I think you build a connection um, with what it is that you you do, and you know, it's very difficult. I I I encourage everyone to truly find what it is that they love, um, and what it is that they really connect with and passionate about. Um, really connect with it, and that's what you do in life. This for me is one of those things. Um, you can sleep at the end of the night knowing that you have tried to, inshallah, do something to leave this world better than you found it. Whether yeah. it's through Quran in action, whether it's through brothers, brothers in need, whether it's through being an electrician, right? Correct. If you've left a, a, and you know that you've made a difference to someone um, or you've done some form of good and you can do different, there's different uh, uh, actions that are good. There's different acts of kindness. There's different acts of um, acts of mercy that you could do that could make someone happy or that could uh, change someone's day. Not necessarily someone's life, but someone's day. That makes you feel connected to what it is that you do. This for me is 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 that. I sleep at the end of the night praying that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes me in that moment, that he's pleased with me. Inshallah. Um, inshallah. So, you know, I think that's one of the things where even after a long day of dealing with different things and putting out different fires, and let me tell you, there's a lot. This job isn't easy. You guys do it. You know, you it's true that it's a little bit different, but the goal is the same. Community, international. Um, it's hard. It's hard, you know, uh, being able to um, I guess maintain a level of expectation for both donors and beneficiaries, um, a high level of standard in delivery because you you always want to make sure that you're giving people the absolute best because that's what we're told to do in Islam is to make sure that you know we give our brothers what we want for ourselves, you know. So um, it's difficult, but sleeping at the end of the night, you know, you pray inshallah that you've done your absolute best. Inshallah. On that note. So let me take you somewhere different, okay? You said that, um, let me take you straight to the Quran. What, what's your relationship with the Quran? Do you have a favorite verse? I do. I was talking earlier about that really dark time that I had. Um, and I was, you know, when I was growing up, my my dad really kind of put pressure on me to learn, but subhanAllah, he never, um, there wasn't really anyone around me that was doing tafsir at an age 
like 10 years old. You know, you don't really understand. And now, alhamdulillah, there's, um, there's a lot of uh, resources, there's, there's a lot of resources for that. Classes. Right? Um, but when I was growing up and learning, I didn't understand what it was that I was reading. Um, and it wasn't until obviously I'd put the hijab on, as I mentioned earlier, that I really started to kind of connect with it again. Um, You're dodging and, the question. What's your favorite verse? Right. <laughs> Sorry. So, um, Wow. What does that mean? Wow. It means that um, I think the backstory of that is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hadn't revealed any verses to the Prophet at that time. And the Prophet thought that Allah wasn't pleased with him. He thought that he had been abandoned. And that revelation, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was telling him, I haven't abandoned you. I won't abandon you. And I won't disgrace you. But what does that also tell us is that even though we sometimes feel as though he's not there, even though we sometimes feel like, you know, why are my du'as being answered? There will come a time. He's always there. But there'll come a time where they're going to be answered in due time because his plan is better than ours. Yeah. And it was because this is, I'm living it right and, now. And subhanAllah just came to me now, like, like the way I could, I'm not giving any tafsir, but the way that it touches me is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, just like there's a day and there's a night, I'm there. And you either see day or night, right? So there isn't any time in this world where there isn't a day or a night. Um, just reflecting or touching that, just like there's a day and there's a night, continuously, Allah is continuously there. But you were telling us, you were telling us how, we, how it touched you. So, so the question is, um, what is your message to anyone, Muslim or non-Muslim, who doesn't read or hasn't read the Quran? Right. Um, my answer to that, and for all of those people out there who haven't actually read the Quran, um, even for those Muslims who feel like they haven't or can't find a way to connect, start with a letter, just one, and then let it flow from there. Because if you have the inclination or the urge to just start with a letter, or by opening and flicking to the first page, it'll come from there. And that's where your connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins. That's where your journey begins. And for those of you who don't have access to a Quran, visit freequran.com.au because our guys here, uh, they'll look after you and they'll definitely send one over, inshallah. How do you implement those verses in your life, in your day-to-day -day activities? Look, there are times um, with everything that I see, uh, and all the suffering that there is in the world, there are definitely times where I feel like, why is it that we're doing everything that we're doing um, and there still is, you know, um, suffering in this world? And then, you know, I go back and I reflect and I, like I said that obviously the work that I do is my hook, um, Quran is my anchor. Uh, I revert back to it and I'm like, you know, specifically with that verse, I learned so much just from that, right? I, you learn that without suffering, there isn't compassion or the opportunity to be compassionate or the opportunity to do good. Um, and that is obviously, you know, that's the, the wisdom and the hikmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But also, it, you know, there's a lot like it's sometimes it's difficult to describe subhanAllah. Um, so, so knowing that so, so taking from that translation or taking from that verse that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always there for his prophet, um, you know, taking that he's always there for us. Right. Are you always there for the people around you? 
I try to be. I hope so. Is that how you implement it? I mean, I'd like to think that, but I can't say that. You've got to ask the people around me. You've got to ask the people around me. I do what it is that I can. And I think that we all try to. I think if you you, um, are comfortable, you know what? Actually, that's not the right way to even put it. Um, You have to not be comfortable, right? You have to feel as though you haven't done enough. And you've got to keep going and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and making sure that you're doing as as much as you possibly can for the people around you and for the people that you know that we serve. Um, And I think that's just what keeps me going. That's how I implement that. Um, But also uh, I think what's, if we put work aside, there's a lot of times where I feel like, you know, I go through waves just as we all do, Um, waves of Iman. I'll give you actually a really good example of that. I was going to leave charity. I did get a job in corporate. Big money? Big money. Like enough to buy a house outright in a couple of years. Right? People dream of that. People dream of living without debt. Is that opportunity still available? (laughs) What's the company called? Maybe. (laughs) Government. (laughs) You you don't want to work for government, alhamdulillah. But look, I I almost... um, left and I had gotten, I think I'd gone through a point where I'd been highly criticized about the work that it is that I do, even though it's in community and it's in charity. Um, and, uh, you know, people were talking to me about you, when are you going to get married and when are you going to have kids and halas, that's it. Your time is, is up. And, and, um, the day before I resigned, I met my husband through my work. Allah. And so what they were telling you to leave to get, you found it where you were, right? Correct. Correct. And that, at that point, I was feeling that sense of abandonment because I wasn't, I felt like at that point, you go, like I said, you go through waves. I wasn't getting any fulfillment from it. And I was like, maybe I do need to branch out. Maybe I do need a change. Maybe I do need to meet different people. And then that was a reminder from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying, I'm going to give you everything that you need. And I'm going to give you everything that's right for you, but you have to be patient. I'm still there. I'm listening to you. Yeah. So how did that verse um, uh, shape your character going forward? Were you a lot more patient? Were you a lot more? I try to be. Yeah. I'm still a little bit impatient. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a good reminder because um, I often, and I think everyone is different um, uh, when you go through the, your different waves of Iman. Um, for me, I instantly feel, and I don't know why, um, alhamdulillah, I have a really good family background so maybe anyone who works in um, mental health could probably tell me this but subhanallah I instantly feel a sense of abandonment and I don't yeah. know whether it's because of you know it's my my journey but I feel like is he is he there is he still listening and then it's the work that it is that I do that's how I ended up in this industry that reminds me that he's always there subhanallah, you know, subhanallah um, as a counsellor so I'm a registered counsellor and in the last 24 hours, I've had two people, um, one of them here, actually cry, literally cry and say, there's a particular job that I want to get involved in. I'm not doing it because I know that there's an element of it that's haram. And he feels like that he's at the age of 25, 27, nothing's going right for him. He hasn't finished uni, he's in between jobs and he's like, I'm waiting for that sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is there for me because I'm sacrificing so much like my heart really wants to be involved in this job I really want to do this job but I'm staying away from it because I know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to be displeased with me 
Where is Allah? I'm making dua to Allah. I'm asking Ya Allah, help guide me in the right direction. I changed the whole uni course to make sure that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pleased with me. And he, you know, he was saying, like, I feel like I can't do this anymore. So subhanAllah, I think it's important that um, hope is a part of that equation. You know, um, loving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, this individual feels like, you know, there's too much of an element of fear with him. So it's like there needs to be an element of love and hope getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I think one thing that's important with that too is that uh, acceptance and embracing it as two very different things. Correct. There's accepting that that's his plan and then there's also embracing that that's his plan and that it's better for you. But you know what's even more important than that? Or not more, just as important is actually taking a lesson from it, right? right. So um, I, w- I want to end this segment with this, but it's a story that I've had with me for years. So I was going through my HSC, um, always had a plan in my head. I want to hit nine, whatever. As long as there's a 90 something, I'm happy. My parents are happy. Makes me sound nerdy, but yeah, that's what I wanted. Um, so extra tuition, extra studies, did the whole shebang, right? Um, HSC is done, satisfied, alhamdulillah. Results come in 89.9. Oh, burning. You know what 89.9 means? <laughs> it means who's teasing me? Like who heard me wanting 90? This is a true story. But 89.9. And you're going to forever be known from here on out as the 89.9 guy, right? But listen, right? <laughs> but listen to this. Um, this taught me a lesson of patience and um, it really brought me closer to my dean, right? Because l- look what happened here. 89.9, picked up the paper, about to smack my head against the wall. It's, it's just like, you know, if it was 88, you say, ah, oh, whatever, it's two points, but point one. Um, it took me two days to calm down and subhanAllah I said, whatever, it is what it is. Put the paper in my drawer, see you later. Two weeks later, I get a letter in the mail. My mom goes, ah, oh, this is for you. I open it up. And it's a letter of offer to UTS, uh, double degree uni- uh, law and uh, business. Hang on, how do you get into law and business on a 89.9? And it said on the bottom that you had applied for um, hardship and you got extra 10 points. Look extra at that. 10 points. So my score was bumped from 89.9 to 99. Uh, sorry, it Does worked it out to be points? six points, whatever. Anyway, I got to 96.9, whatever the math is. And I looked at it. And I remember looking in the mirror and just smiling. And I kid you not, I mean, there are times where you're up and down, but I have never been more satisfied with my life after that. Because what's going to happen is going to happen. I'm sorry, but that's just made me really emotional now because that is proof for you. And everyone has their own that he does look after you. And just because you feel like something is right for you, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is just like you're the person that you were just talking about now. He wants this so badly, but is it right for him? Because Allah knows what's right for him. And, and you need to earn it, right? So right. In, 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 the, in the side of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, different people earn things differently. So the lesson that I learned from that is I need to earn it. And you'll get what you're given. And if you ask for something, you'll get it but not necessarily the way you want it. Whether it's a brother who wants a wife or a sister who wants a husband or a couple who want children or a child that wants a PlayStation. You'll get, you'll get it just when the time is right and the method is right. Alhamdulillah. But we're going we're gonna to close that segment there and I want to skip straight to something which could be a bit more emotional. Um, Again, sister, going through your socials, and this is close to our heart because we were there as well. Um, 
15th of March, 2019, horrific terrorist attack in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, I saw on your page that you were there straight after the attack. I want to know as a Muslim woman, right? So I want you to keep that perspective because we want to reach out to the sisters that are out there um, and tell them that they're just as important as the men that are in the sector. Because we mentioned this earlier, we're, we're a 50-50 split in the population. Um, so you might want to touch on that. But as a Muslim woman, talk us through your feelings when you heard the news and when you reached Christchurch. Uh, there wasn't much of a time, like timeline, a big timeline between hearing the news and actually being there on the ground. So um, just to clarify, you went there with with the charity to. I did. Correct. Yeah, yeah, I did go with the charity. Um, it was myself and one other person at the time because yeah. it was whoever could quickly get out there. So I didn't really have time to actually process what had happened until I got there. Um, and I think when I did and I actually saw the community and the pain that they had gone through or been through at that time, because it wasn't just, it, it happened in New Zealand and it happened to those people, but it was felt all over the world. It literally was felt all over the world by the Ummah. Every, in every single country they were talking about it, but they weren't just talking about it, they were crying for it, they were feeling it because these are brothers and sisters who you know, were in a state of peace when they passed um, and they were innocent. Uh, being a Muslim woman on the ground, it wasn't, um, I felt like we, I was very privileged to be there first, first off. It was an absolute privilege to, to, to represent my community at that time. Um, but also, uh, I think there isn't, um, there aren't enough, uh, and right now this has changed now from, from when we went to now. Um, there are a lot more female advocates and female spokes, like people within our community who've actually come up and they're incredible, incredible people. Um, but at that time it was really, really emotional. Um, sorry, I just, can I stop right no, there? No, that's fine. I think, um, when you went with your charity, what was it? It's right. Yeah. Take a moment. Yeah. Take a moment. Yeah. It was hard. I'll tell, tell you a story about a Muslim ambassador in Christchurch. So we got there. So we went there a couple of months after, right? Um, I don't know. We just kept saying, we got to go. We got to go. What are we doing? We're not handing out vouchers. We're not doing nothing. We just want to go. So I got on a plane, myself, brother Dean, a couple of brothers, and we got there. Um, and it was just astonishing, like what, two, three months later, and people were still swamping to the mosque. But the story that touches me about a Muslim ambassador is we went through and there was a sister in a, in a hijab, a jilbab, standing at the door and putting headscarves onto um, the women that are visiting the mosques, right? Um, long story short, we were there for a week. Only on the last day did we find out that this sister had become a Muslim after the attacks, which was two months later. So not only did she accept Islam afterwards, but then she dedicated her time to the mosque and to serving the community. I, I guess the story that I'm trying to take from here is um, is that, you know, like the role of Muslim, like we're coming from Australia and look at the story that stuck in my head. Right. And for look at the a, impression that she made. For me, it was a little bit different because I was hearing from people who were actually affected by that. So I actually sat with the person who lost his wife mm. in that attack. I sat in his living room. And that wasn't an easy thing to do being a woman in that position because he had just lost his wife. Right. And so 
the moment he saw me, because I had a brother with me um, who was traveling with me. Abdullah, shout out to you. Honestly, it was such a massive support at that time. Um, he saw Abdullah first. And then as soon as he saw me, he broke down into tears because I reminded him of what it is, of who he had lost. And that was very, very difficult because what do you say in that moment? Because whatever it is that you say is going to stay with this person for the rest of their lives. They're going to remember it because they're remembering everything that had happened. Um, so I just had to be the best that I could be. And I had to be human in that moment. I know that it's a, the, maybe it is a female perspective, right? Um, but being human in that moment um, and forgetting about who it is that you're there to represent because you represent an ummah um, and you represent all of the brothers and sisters that are behind this person now in support of them because they had a, you know, there was a lot that they didn't have and she was the main breadwinner because she was the one who was on the visa and there was a lot going on at that time and yeah, it was difficult, alhamdulillah. So we visited the um, the graveyard on one of the days mm. and our um, our host there, we're standing and you know, there's graves to your left and graves to your right and he said, um, he said moments before there was only three graves here, now there's 54. And um, it really shakes you, right? Because what we learned from there is that the Muslim population in New Zealand was only 10,000. So as a percentage-wise, it's really high, right? Um, one thing to note as well is that it's a very multicultural community. So you'd see people from, you know, all, all walks of life from different countries that have migrated to New Zealand for a better life. Um, but I guess what's somewhat satisfying is... There's a little bit of jealousy, you know. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose these people in a pure mind, physically pure. They had just made their wudu. Some of them facing the qibla, some of them prostrating to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's hard. It's hard. Um, but maybe it's best for them. I would agree with that. Um, the next day after one of the burials that we had attended... Um, we were at the, the rally that, you know, they held many rallies, but one of the biggest ones that they held where the prime minister spoke at, we were there. And then straight after that, I thought, let's stick around and talk to the community members, not just, not the Muslim ones, but the non-Muslim ones too. Cause I really want to kind of like get their take and see how it is that they feel about this. And it was incredible to see that it had really brought everyone together. So it did the opposite of what that person w was trying to do. It didn't break and a community. Plan, it brought an entire nation together and it opened up their eyes to what Islam actually is, which is such a beautiful thing and a powerful message. Um, and, and now, I mean, I actually just got back from New Zealand because we did an event there. And someone was saying to me, because I was asking, what's the population of Muslims in New Zealand now? And it's 60,000 people. Allah yeah. Allah. Wow. 60,000 Muslims. And I think... Because that was reported last year. I think it's grown since then. Because, alhamdulillah, like, I, I, I did walk away from their jealous. Sorry, let me um, I just trigger a memory. So when we were there, it was a population of 50,000. 50,000. Yeah. So now you're at 60, right? So right. you look at, what, 20% growth in a matter of a couple of years. Correct. I guess um, when you were at that rally and you were with uh, people from different faith that weren't Muslims, how did you use your role to educate them about Islam? 
Uh, well, I, there was a few people in particular who actually stood out, um, who started asking me about what it is that I did and, you know, my background. And then obviously we started talking about hijab, which is very interesting considering you, you brought up that story because it raised a lot of questions, particularly with Muslim, like with non-Muslim women, um, who wanted to know more, who wanted to, you know, understand what role we play, you know, in our deen, because obviously they've heard something different. They have heard about, you know, oppression. They have heard about us not having a voice, but I was an example that that didn't exist. It's not there. You know, what it is that you you hear, you know, is not true. You've got to do your own um, research. So uh, this this lady that, that um, she was there with her kids and I think, um, I love, I think at that point when you see children in a time of uh, what others would describe as a, a dark time, there's obviously a lot of joy surrounding, surrounding them. Um, and so I found that, you know, interesting. So I started playing with the kids and then I opened up an entire topic about, you know, um, everything that I just mentioned. And uh, it was a beautiful thing to, a beautiful feeling to be able to understand or even accept. I think it was very overwhelming at the time, but Allah picked me as a representative to be there, to actually talk about that, to, um, to speak to people who were non-Muslim, who didn't even know what Islam was. Uh, about what it, who it is that we are, which is an incredible, incredible thing. Alhamdulillah. So, hundred yeah, percent. Uh, just a story that comes to mind is we were there and and the people were coming to visit and I think I I pointed out Dean. I said there's a, there's a group of people standing at the gate. Like invite them in. Um, so I sent one of the younger brothers. He came back. They said, oh no, they. You know, they don't want to come in. Oh, let's go see what the issue is. Hey, how you going? Please welcome. She's like, oh, I'm not dressed appropriately. Um, no, no. Are you sure? No, no, it's all right. I said, I said, if I came to visit your church on a Sunday, would you invite me in? Yes, of course I would. I said, and if you're having a barbecue, would you offer me something to eat? She says, of course. I said, so why is it any different here? And she looked at me blank. And she said, you're right. And it was like a big group. I'm telling you, it was probably 15 people, children, adults, teenagers, everything. And they just walked in, stood at the door, put their headscarf on, took their shoes off, walked in respectfully, walked out and thanked us for allowing them to visit a mosque. Now, again, I always talk about, you know, double-edged swords. It's amazing that they visited. How disgraceful is it on us? that there's people out there that think that our mosques are not open to the community. Right. Now, why did it need to take an event like that to bring people into our mosques? So sometimes here in Australia, um, you know, we'll have open mosque day once a year and that won't be all 150 so or 200 mosques. You know, every other yeah. day, you're not welcome only one day a year. Yeah. Yeah. What? Uh, here's a question for you. What did you, there are a lot of lessons obviously that you took from, Christchurch, right? Um, but how would you say that we've developed as a community since then? Because that that's an important question. Are we talking about here in Australia or there in New Zealand? Here in Australia. What have we learned from it? And have we implemented those learnings? You've put me on the spot. I think it's a bit tricky. Are you putting me on the spot all night? <laughs> yeah, that's all right. It's my job. <laughs> Look, um, to talk as a community, it's hard, right? I can talk to you as an individual level. I can talk to you as Project Quran Brothers and need the handful of people that we work with. 
And everything I'm telling you now is 100% genuine. We've definitely sat behind closed doors and said, why did it take for 51 people to die for people in New Zealand to know that the mosques were open? You know, um, what are we trying to implement? Inshallah, we've got things in the pipeline that we're trying to implement, but that mindset needs to change from the individuals. Only then would it evolve into communities. Now, in saying that, um, a lot of the mosques started joining into the mosque open day events. I know it's not easy to, to welcome people every day, but coming from a marketing background, it takes time, but we do need to start propagating that you're welcome to come to the mosque. Um, I've started to see a lot of organizations bring schools into mosques, um, students of comparative religion. I've seen organizations that have invited uh, students from Catholic schools into the mosque or even church communities into the mosques. So we see these things pop up on social media, um, and I pray that it's just the beginning. And I guess speaking of social media, uh, we'll segue into the last leg of the podcast. Um, that terrorist in New Zealand used social media to showcase that horrendous act. And so for you as marketing director, is everything that we see on social media accurate? Yes and no, right? Um, depends on how it's used, I would say. There's a lot of things that I would say we try to... Also depends on who it is that's behind the the, the, the lens, like behind the camera, to, to be able to give you a window into what it is that they want you to see. Um, but that's not always the case. Depends on the source. Um, and it depends on uh, the relationship that you have with the source. Um, but like you've said previously, it's a double-edged sword. Um, there are things that are 100% accurate and there are things that aren't. Uh, and so is exaggeration used a lot? Yeah. Like, like, we, like Ramadan comes and we see all these videos from charities and kids eating out of dumpsters and people walking around barefoot and the water is yellow. It, you know, it's devastating. Um but is that really the case or are we just seeing something that's exaggerated? I mean, you've been on the ground, I haven't. You're not seeing something that's exaggerated. That is 100% the case. Um, it's one of those things where uh, we don't, it's not easy to to show people living in that way. We have to try and protect their dignity as much as we can. So there's actually a lot more that you haven't seen. Wow. You know, um, especially now, like if you have a look at some of the, the, the recent, um, the recent attacks in Gaza, let's use that, use that as yep. an example. What you're seeing from the ground is accurate, right? And it's because uh, it's directly happening, it's live. You're seeing everything as it happens. That happens all over the world. That kind of oppression, that kind of um, suffering, it's there. But you don't see it all the time. We only give you a window into that, right? And it's difficult to kind of filter out what it is that we think is going to be too much for the community. Even though the community asks for that, sometimes it's like, we wanna see poor people. We don't wanna give unless you know they're 100% poor. Yep. Um, but as we spoke about earlier, uh, they don't have to be, um, give me the English translation for this, but completely matrin yeah. in order for them to completely, completely like impoverished, right? For, for those of you who didn't understand that. That's a Lebanese thing. So yeah. please, my Lebanese counterpart, tell yeah. us. Uh, we understand <laughs> each other, it's fine. <laughs> um, they don't have to be uh, in that state in order for them to require help. We don't have to be in that state to require help. 
we could go, you know, um, there are people that we see within our community that are, that are recipients of zakat. Correct. You wouldn't even know it, you know. So to go back to your question, there are things that are accurate. I would say probably about maybe 60, 40, 60, 40 of what you see um, is, is, is accurate and not exaggerated. Um, and I'm not going to like from a charity perspective, what you see is what you get. That's yeah. not exaggerated in any way. You can't, you can't sit there and orchestrate someone eating from a dumpster. And sometimes we don't even want to show that because we have to try and protect their dignity as much as we possibly can. Sister Jasmine, it's been an amazing conversation. I'm, I'm sure myself and Dean have learned a lot from your life experiences. Um, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continue to use you, to use us, to use everybody who's working out there in the community for good. Uh, like I said earlier, yourself or anyone in your shoes could very easily be in the corporate world earning 10 times whatever um but i'm sure what you're earning now is a lot more valuable and on this note you know talking about stuff that's valuable and how we can empower the young muslim girls in our community i just want to end with three life tips that you could give to the young muslim girls young muslim women um and your camera's right there here are my three life tips uh, for all of you young women out there who are struggling to find your voice or find your identity. The first is understand and know that what it is that you have to say is important. Your voice is important. So believe in yourself. That's one. Um, the second is criticism is important, but take it as feedback right and don't let it bring you down let it drive you further here's number three uh number three is do not let anyone use islam your deen as a weapon against you let this be your armor let this be your shield and what it is that helps you navigate this world uh, 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 uh,